That's about the same number as last month, so should be fine to just wing it. I'm ready to wing it. Jake's prepared for winging. Just wing it. Just wing it is like a local wings place t-shirt yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah it's Buffalo yeah. Wild Wings. Just wing it. <laughs> Welcome to the Idle Thumbs Ruination Online for November 2017. Uh, this is the podcast on which we answer questions posed to us by high-tier contributors to our Patreon campaign. For Idle Thumbs, I'm Chris Remo. I'm Nick Brecken. I'm Jake Rodkin. Only the high tier. High tiers. Yeah, high tiers. <laughs> Thanks for asking questions. We're going to answer them for you. Mm. I learned while drinking my coffee that Nick Brecken can't drink coffee, Jake. What? Yeah. I'm just incapable. What? I've seen you drink coffee. What does that even mean? Yeah, why can you not drink it today, but you could like two days ago? Uh, my ulcer flared up. So that's just like a thing that happens <laughs> unpredictably? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah oh my no. God. They're like triggers, like, like you know, spicy food. Most of the time I can eat spicy food, but then sometimes it just triggers an ulcer. Man, <laughs> yeah, wow. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah, it's really bad. Sorry. Yeah. Anyway. Bummer. Uh, okay, well, on that... Exciting note. First question First answered. First question, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> that was my question. Mm. Uh, the next question, the second question, comes from Alex Schroeder, who asks, have you considered doing an important if true panel at PAX? It seems like it would fit really well, even if it isn't game-focused. Take prompts from the audience, maybe give a guest or two, goof around for an hour, basically do what you already do, but live. I've never thought about doing important no. if true as a live show, actually. It's always seemed like it would be... A disaster. We almost no, never with, stream it with, anyway. With no audience. <laughs> yeah. Important of true is just a lot harder for us to ever put together. So I could imagine doing it as a live show for sure, but I definitely try wouldn't get packs. No? There's enough comedy nerd crap there. Are there other I would I would want to look for precedent and see if there are other non gaming Sorry, by comedy nerd crap I was including us there, just so that everyone's clear. <laughs> I'm aware. Okay. You, I yeah. meant the people at home. I meant our high tier backers. <laughs> <laughs> um I don't know. I I don't know. Maybe. I would probably rather do it at something that where it seems like the subject matter is more like directly related, but I don't know what that is. That might not exist. Comedy nerd yeah. crap con. <laughs> Comedy nerd yeah. CNCC. I, I'm going to just probably throw it out there. That's got to probably on a boat somewhere, Chris, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, now I am being slightly rude. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I could see Important of True being being done live. I could see us renting that huge old like pirate ship style sailing vessel that's out parked in the bay and doing a, a one episode only important if true live show on a boat. That would be fucking cool. <laughs> For no reason. Sorry, this is only 30 tickets. It's the very worst environment to record podcast <laughs> record audio. Podcast at sea <laughs> on a tiny old sailing ship. We're not going to tell anyone, but then, but midway through the show, the ship unmoors and drifts <laughs> out into the bay. Oh, it could go out in the bay. It's allowed to do that. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. That's cool. Mm, yeah. Is that the, that's not we, the one that we, I don't, I don't think, think it's the same one, but we've been no. on. Yeah, Nick and I definitely went on a crazy video, a wacky video game press event on an old sailing ship. That it's probably definitely won't. wasn't docked here because they sailed no. it from like it South a, America yeah, or something. It just ship. goes around the world. I also went to events. a video game event on an old sailing ship oh, on yeah? the bay, which was for the fourth Monkey Island game in like 2001 <laughs> or something oh, wow. like that. Ours was for Total War Empire. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. They fired so, cannons at another ship. Yeah, they did. They had a mock we battle. Could follow in these footsteps yeah. by having a podcast about like and robots could, like, and Facebook yeah, then algorithms. We could have a battle against Mabim Bam or something, and they would fucking no, own us. We could have a battle against the Google Barge. That's true. <laughs> um, well, that's that answered definitively. Uh, Daniel asks, "What is your favorite thing?" Yes, that is my question this month. Oh Jesus! Your favorite thing. This question. <laughs> is it? It is right now, this month. <laughs> Man, this is so hard to say because it's obviously such a br- incredibly really just, broad. You want to just come up with a, a list, really. You don't want to name just one. Well, it depends. Yeah. I mean, if you think of it as you have to pick one thing, I think the thing that I would probably pick is sleep. And the fact that I go to such <laughs> lengths to sabotage my own ability hmm. and sort of healthy relationship with sleep, I feel like is a totally appropriate microcosm that like answers this question in additional ways that were not stated. 
Um, uh, but that is, I mean, that's kind of, I mean, that's that's a. I wonder if they meant thing in in a more, in a less abstract sense. way. Yeah. How the hell do you determine one like like a you mean like a physical object? How do you like determine one your one favorite object in the world? You've got to have one. Do I? What's yours? I don't know. It's probably my phone. (laughs) (laughs) It's got everything else in it. (laughs) My favorite thing is existence, the universe. (laughs) I mean, you're the one who put the the thing parameter on it. My favorite thing is the thing Thing by John Carpenter. (laughs) The first one, though, not the second one. (laughs) I like thing one, not thing two. Oh, Jesus. Nick, what's your favorite thing? Oh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> my girlfriend. Oh, you think of her as a thing, do you? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow, Nick, wow. Just wow. No, uh, my favorite thing uh, is this pill that allows me to not produce acid so that my, my, so your my, ulcer, doesn't my ulcer doesn't flare up. <laughs> if I didn't have that, I would probably just die by now. But it's, it's, it's a good thing to have. All right. That's a good answer. <laughs> It's a thing. Um, Brian Brandon says, I'm hoping for more postcard information. I never got my August postcard that it seems like a lot of people got, and we used to get more updates about what was going on with the postcards overall, but it seemed very quiet lately. Is there any more information about what's been going on with the postcards? Uh, I replied to this specifically to Brian, asking him to send him in his information, so I'm going to just make sure that we get a new postcard out for yeah. him that he didn't receive. But other than that, uh, August should have gone out. September and October seem to have their shoelaces tied together and are falling off a hill, but they're supposed to both be shipping to us. Yeah. They're ready to go on our end. We're just still waiting for them to arrive from the printer. We should find a new printer. Uh, yeah, we maybe we probably should. Um, we've been using, they seemed fine for the first few months. Yeah. But it's been pretty spotty in the last like couple months for some reason. Um, they're really good though. I bet. <laughs> what does that mean? Oh, the quality of the postcards. Yeah, they seem they seem good. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, oh, yeah, the reason there haven't been as many updates is because we don't really have anything else to say at this point. Unfortunately, we're just waiting still on them to be delivered. Uh, uh, I've noticed a number of people have uh, <laughs> canceled their uh, Patreons recently, <laughs> and I wouldn't be surprised if that's the reason. But I, if you're listening to this and you did, I want to say that you will still get all the postcards that you, uh, for the months during which you were subscribed, because we have all of those months as separate yeah, we, uh, data dumps. So there's, We run the addresses off each month and then wait for the postcards. Yeah, exactly. So there's no Destroy risk of losing anything that you paid for. Um, uh, and if you do have a specific question, you can email us at support at idlethumbs.net. So I'm sorry about that to everyone. We're really trying to get those out. Um, Andy asks... I'm going to San Francisco for a vacation. Recommendations on stuff to do? I don't know why I said it like that. Can people visit the Campo Santo <laughs> office? Uh, it's not worth visiting our office. I don't. We actually don't have visitors that often, but... Um, no. It's very small. I mean, it has this room in it, but other than that, there's, it's not remarkable at all. Yeah. Um, what to do in San Francisco? Go to Alcatraz. <clears throat> go to Alcatraz. It's pretty cool. That's, that's legit. Alcatraz seems like... The, the tourist dumb thing to do, and it's re- and getting to it is really annoying because you get to it basically from a tourist trap. You mm. get to it from basically adjacent to Fisherman's Wharf and Pier 39, yeah. which do not go to those. There's yeah. no benefit in going to Does, those. Is there not a ferry that leaves from the ferry building? For well, the Alcatraz? I think yeah, there maybe. might be. I thought that, okay, the one It'd that I always... Weird route, I could be wrong. Yeah. No, I guess... No, I guess that would be pretty. It's not. It's not too. Yeah, yeah. Not we don't know. Anyway, Alcatraz is actually cool. Yeah, the <clears> cool <throat> thing about Alcatraz is that it is a thing that is totally unique to the city, whereas a lot of the other tourist trap stuff, like Fisherman's Wharf, there's nothing there that there's very little there, I should say, that isn't pretty much the same as the kind of tourist crap you get at any other mm. major port city. You know what? Actually. Uh, I went down there with my dad one day. What, Alcatraz? Uh, no, 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 no. The Fisherman's Wharf. Oh, okay. Um, uh, there are actually some cool ships if you pay to get into this area oh, okay. of a pier. There are some really cool old, like, 1850s, like, like sailing ships down there that you can walk around on. It's actually worth As the price of admission. As weirdly referred to already in this uh, podcast. These are, these are more like... Um, 
like old cargo ships that mm. were you know still of the sailing freighters. age, but like yeah, like big like big old freighters, and it's 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 pretty it's pretty cool. Nice. I'd say that that's worth a dollar or right. whatever they're charging. But and um, actually, Fisherman's Wharf mm. also now has the. Oh no! Yeah, I guess it's Fisherman's Wharf is where the Exploratorium is now, right? It's not. It's just on a pier. Okay, one of the piers, but the along the Embarcadero. is a great the, science museum. Yeah, it's cool. It's a sort of kid-focused, but still very, I think, enjoyable for all ages mm-hmm. uh, science museum with a lot of experiments you can interact with and installations and uh, this wacky thing called the Tactile Dome. Tactile Dome's worth a ticket. The, yeah. um, you have to get a separate reservation for it. The uh, worst and best Fisherman's Wharf related tourist trap is gone, I think, which is the floating island restaurant. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Forbes yeah, Island they closed it. is yeah. gone. Um, so that's too bad. Yeah. Uh, other San Francisco stuff that we've probably talked about on these podcasts. If you like a fruity cocktail and a themed environment, go to the bar Smuggler's Cove. Definitely. Highly recommended. Also, yeah. if you like. Uh, if you like room escape games and don't mind that those exist in other places, the, there's a room escape game company called Palace Games that runs room escape games out of the Palace of Fine Arts, and they're some of the best ones of those that I've ever mm. played. Yeah, I really amazing. highly recommend them. Also, walking around the Palace of Fine Arts is just cool. Yeah, it's really it's like, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Mm. It's a remnant of the Panama, like Pan America uh, World's Fair ex- exhibition. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah, it's a sort of like whatever art nouveau beaux-arts style big outdoor park that has a bunch of cool room escape games inside of it yep also walking around the uh japantown mall oh yeah that's fun actually <laughs> what japantown mall you've never been i, I have oh, okay but it's great it's, i love that place go to festa the karaoke bar it's hilarious all right it's really there good go. there, you, there you go there's all some right. things well that's a lot uh, Seth Henry says, I'm looking for a little advice from some of my favorite meme-hating podcasters. Are we, like, famously meme-hating? I think that we're meme... I feel like I'm meme... Uh, we're meme, meme creators. I'm, America yeah. needs more memes, and we're providing them. I'm meme-neutral. I feel like it's really context-dependent. You love memes, yeah. I think, like, you love a good meme. I love a good meme, yeah. You yeah. really love a good meme, though. Yeah. You, like, you relish a meme. Anyway, Seth Henry... <laughs> Seth Henry continues, in our current dumpster fire of a political climate, do you have any experience walking away from familial relationships because revelations have come to pass about beliefs that just don't fly with you? My father's side of the family is very right-leaning to the point that I find myself upset at the things they share online. It's gotten so bad, I don't want to interact with them on any level anymore, but I feel very guilty when considering this. These... Their memes are often from far-right or alt-right sources, so you can imagine the degree of bad that they can get. Thanks for any insight or help you can provide. Feel free to edit this somewhat lengthy question as necessary. Um, I would say I can relate to this question. Uh, Not in the sense of, like, my family posting memes online, because nobody in my family even goes online in a way that... I mean, I'm sure they do in the way that literally everyone does does now, because everything all information exists online, but they don't, none of them maintain an online presence Mm. or anything. So I don't have this, but I definitely have, I can very much relate to not wanting to like communicate with or be around your family a lot in a, for, in part for these kinds of reasons and in part for other reasons. And I feel like a lot of my adult life emotionally has been spent trying to find ways to like distance myself from my family not in a hard break way but just to like wean myself off of having to like be around them or like (laughs) (laughs) this sounds really shitty and I'm really sorry if it comes off that way but I'm answering this honestly because I feel like there's probably a lot of people in this kind of situation and I feel like finding small ways to de like unextricate yourself from ongoing communication with your family if it is in fact psychologically stressful for you is totally fine and valid and I think can make it make you better able to have a healthier interactions with your family when you do have to interact with them like I have found that I have tried to balance that out so I just slowly find ways to like gain ground and have just sort of put distance there and it means when I have to close that distance it's less fraught because there's less just ongoing baggage that's been constantly building up Um, and with stuff like online I would just mute 
them or like don't follow their posts on Facebook or whatever. I yeah, mean, the, the <clears> show <throat> me less of this type of media from this person button on Facebook is one of the actual helpful Facebook algorithm controls yeah, that exists. For sure. Of just, uh, yeah, I found people with whom I want to still know major life events and occasionally be in contact with from high school or from like distant family I've successfully suppressed most of the meme content by way of that button. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I um, There's a little downward facing arrow to the top right of every post. If you click that and press the suppress meme button, it will, <laughs> it will yeah. suppress the meme. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a, a thing with these kinds of algorithms that is, in the broad terms, dangerous in terms of dividing everyone into b- sort of self-reinforcing bubbles. But on the other hand, like, you really can't put a price on... On a self-reinforced bubble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on on maintaining sort of a healthy psychological distance from things that are just going to be distressing to you on a daily basis. So I wouldn't feel guilty about that. Uh, Jesse asks, what's the thing each of you has the most skill and knowledge, skill or knowledge in at this point in life, and how will it help you survive the coming robot apocalypse? <laughs> Any, worthless. All yeah, worthless. Yeah, no, right, not, worthless. Not, Any tag team have. combos you can pull off as a podcasting team in a survival situation? <laughs> P.S. The J in my name is pronounced like the Y in you, so it's UC. Sorry about that, UC. How did you say it at the beginning? Uh, Jussie. Okay, I thought you said we're going to open it with Juicy, which would have been... <clears throat> I, I think I have in past months. Um, I just say it a different way every time, because I forget every time. I still don't even know if... Just differently bad every month. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> On idle thumbs. Yep. That's why we call it ruination. So what are our skills and how do they apply in a bad future? They don't. They what's, really your, don't. what's your deepest skill or knowledge? <laughs> My deepest skill? I mean, I think that's the... It says... Because the question is, what is the thing each of you has the most skill or knowledge in? Oh, God. It's probably... I mean... Ugh. <laughs> yeah, I hate this question. <laughs> it makes me feel like I don't well, have enough Well, I'm a video game developer. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, that's where yeah. my, my most applicable in the world. Yeah. Kill me. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, mean, you don't have to because I'm dead now that the, now the society has collapsed. Yeah. And that yeah. still didn't help you. So yeah. 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 I don't know how we would tag team anything with our skills in, a, in an apocalypse. <laughs> just, yeah, no, I don't know. There's no... There's no Out, uh, outside of, I guess, video game development related concerns, yeah. it would be something really worthless, like like manipulating airline miles or some shit. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> Good, that's your deepest skill. Only, well, I'm trying to think of things that aren't just like <clears throat> within my obvious professional career. Oh, you know, we could, yeah, we could design and create a video game that is played inside of a fully sensory enveloping environment to allow humans to not know that the world has collapsed. (laughs) Yeah, you're helping. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's how we help. Yeah. I mean, you could try to trick a robot like that, but they'd they'd see through it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. They'd kill you. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Unless you were able to manipulate airline miles. To get yeah. such great maybe discounts, the, maybe the maybe the robots will just keep maintain. I mean, pretty much all large sort of world-spanning globalized industries are all just going to end up being run by AI routines anyway. So maybe those systems will just continue to exist, uh, and my skills will remain useful. Maybe money will just collapse, and all that's left is airline miles. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll just, you know, they're not they're not backed by any government. So when all the governments are decayed and rotting, it doesn't matter. Airline miles are the original. Uh, I don't even know what that fuck that is called. I guess it's because an airline mile is not a cryptocurrency, but it's no, a, a fiat currency. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. I mean, I guess an airline mile is sort of a fiat currency. It, it's <laughs> As long as the corporations backing it continue to exist and be maintained. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. That's where the value lies. Yeah. All right. Well, that's our. Those are our stupid skills and tag teams. God, sorry. Just imagining you walking through just a dusty, like Terry Gilliam or Blade Runner twenty forty nine environment of like just this ruined, horrible city, and then like, bing, a sliding door still works somewhere, and you're able to like punch in your SPG number into an iPad and like get yeah. and get a key card access to yeah. to like a nice get a suite. marginal upgrade. Yeah, to just, a, <laughs> yeah get a, room with forest view. <laughs> exactly. <Yes. laughs> <laughs> Which in this case just means that the TV walls have unlocked the forest theme. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Behind that, behind that TV wall on the other side of the, of the, the outside on the wall is just a fully burned forest. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> charred tree stumps. But you're you're able to just get that, you know. Yeah. Up until the 11 a.m. checkout, you just have a little break. <laughs> but that was your last. 
Uh, oh, I get late checkout with my. Oh, you get late checkout, right? Yeah, I'm there until four p.m. Until four p.m. But those were your final your final points. That's yeah. your status ends tonight. Yeah. That's also what the robot says when it kills you. <laughs> uh, Spencer Hayden says, "The God, this is a long question. This this already looks like more than one question to me. We'll see how this pans out." An aging thief encounters a genie and earns a single wish. Knowing the malevolence and joy the jinn take in twisting wishes, the thief attempts to leverage his wish into a power that will not cause him long-term harm. He asks to be able to know before a job if he will finally be able to retire afterwards. The genie smiles and grants the wish. What? Wait, what's the what? wish? I'm, I'm, I'm missing a few, <laughs> few details in there. I, this is before a job. Wait, what? Wait, okay. Well, I'm, what, what, what? It's a thief, Nick. Okay, let's well, do jobs. An, yeah, aging, know, but... an aging thief encounters a genie and earns a single wish. Okay, thief has one wish. Knowing the malevolence and joy Jin take in twisting wishes, the thief attempts to leverage his wish into a power that will not cause him long-term harm. He asks to be able to know before a job if he will finally be able to retire afterwards okay so when it says he asks he's requesting that power as his wish okay so his wish is to know before he performs a heist or whatever <laughs> if that if the gains will be large I enough see. to to support his life indefinitely afterwards okay the genie smiles and grants the wish the thief then discovers that by contemplating an action they are about to undertake they can know if it will be the last time they perform the action. The thief learns no context, simply a last or not last. Is this the last small job? Is this huge score the last job and a smooth retirement? Does the thief fall out of a window and never employ his sneaky boots ever again? The only question the thief discovers the power does not work on is, is this the last time I will use this power? Imagine now that you have this curse. How long does it take to ruin yourself? What? <laughs> I am so confused. How, I don't even know how to approach this. The, do you, so, uh, <laughs> I feel like we've reached the like the pinnacle of this style of I know, important yeah, question. I don't even know what to do. Just like yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I. <laughs> I, I it think would take no time at all. I've already ruined. The thief I'm is instantly paralyzed by the specificity and <laughs> sort of vague tendrils of existential dread present in anything involving this comma, but he cannot deduce any knowledge yeah, from it. Yeah, ruined immediately. Yeah. Um, <sighs> <laughs> I ge I genuinely don't know the answer to this question. <laughs> I, 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 it's, I, I, it feels so, um, it feels like there's so much going on. Someone in chat says this is 100% a Markov chain slash predictive text. <laughs> That's, no, I was actually wondering <laughs> in the middle of that. I don't think so. Was, I think it's I don't an elaborately it constructed no, uh, Sentences scenario. are too theoretically yeah. coherent. Yeah, there's no way, but yeah. I'm going to move on. I'm sorry, Spencer Hayden. Oh. Um, I don't, I don't know what to, <laughs> I don't know what to <laughs> tell you on this. It's, Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure if it's a question if if you are able to internalize it entirely, I'm sure that there's a weird, interesting hypothetical that you could spin out of it. But it is so, it hurts my brain too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes me feel dumb. Robert Hoffman asks, "What should I get my dad for Christmas? He's kind of old, so I think Chris might be able to offer some valuable insight." <laughs> uh, by weird coincidence, uh, the most recent episode of Important If True, which was released after this question was asked ended up having a whole section about how giving gifts causes, causes to my family specifically causes me mm, massive mm, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. like distress which reasons why I might further be um, suggested by my, one, my answer to one of an earlier question on this this episode but uh, specifically with my dad I have fallen into a very safe and non-loaded thing that I just get him every year for Christmas and it's I buy it differently each year but it's the same and what it is is uh like nice loose leaf teas and one of those little Classic i got him one of those gift. little um like strainer ball things mm -hmm. that you can use mm -hmm. to you know because he just used tea bags before that uh and i just go to the there's a couple tea stores in the mall downtown in san francisco and i just go to those and just buy ones that aren't you know that seem like pretty neutral and easy to assume that they're not going to be that they'll be received fine uh, yeah. so that's that's I mean that only works if your dad actually drinks tea 
but things like that uh, find like observe your dad's um, or recall from your childhood your dad's kind of general puttering around patterns <laughs> and just pick something like neutral and non-offensive that slots into that is mm. what I that's what I've learned and it has served me totally fine um Michael Jakes writes what as Twin Peaks fans what pieces of entertainment, TV, movies, books, or games do you recommend that have a similar vibe? Some great examples I've found include the anime series Paranoia Agent and the novel Dark Mans by Nicola Barker. Or Nicola Barker. Twin Peaks type stuff? Yeah. Ah. I mean, Jake, you recently on Idle Thumbs talked about playing uh, Thimbleweed Park. Yeah, Thimbleweed Park has like some some airs of Twin Peaks type stuff in the beginning of the game, but the farther in it yeah, goes, the farther more it drifts away from that. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you worked on a game called Puzzle Agent that has kind of that vibe as well. Yeah, Puzzle Agent was a sort of Professor Layton like game that that I worked on with Sean Vanneman and uh, cartoonist Graham Annabel and a bunch of other people at Telltale Games. And it, yeah, it starts off or it's it's very Twin Peaksy on on the surface level in that like. Graham really wanted it to be Twin Peaksy, where it's about an FBI agent who comes to a small town and there's weird things happening in it. But tone wise, it doesn't do a lot of the stuff that Twin Peaks does. I mean, yeah. that's that's whenever people ask about this, I always find it really tough because my favorite stuff, like my favorite thing about Twin Peaks, is is that although it has that small town America setting, everything going on basically the moment you sort of go slightly off into the into the extremities of the world or sort of into the shadows of it it gets so strange and so like just cinematically and structurally insane and in a way that only david lynch stuff is that it's really hard to point to other things that are that are like it yeah i agree the the surface level aesthetics there's a ton of stuff but yeah i never find those things satisfying they they sort of film and television the very like post twin peaks film and television that tries to exist in that milieu I have not really ever found to be very compelling in the way that Twin Peaks is so I don't so it's hard for me to say like oh yeah check out this or this or this because I just never end up sticking with any of that stuff uh, Nick are you even do you even I, do you even forget, watch Twin you, Peaks no I just I feel like I've heard <laughs> you talk about it but I don't think I, you're like a Twin Peaks person necessarily well I've, I've seen the first two seasons okay, I have yeah, not yeah, seen yeah. the third season yet. yeah 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 so. I don't suppose you have any ideas. No, I have front. no idea. Yeah, Other David Lynch stuff. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's I mean, that's true. Yeah, Just genuinely, that. yeah. if you haven't, if you've watched Twin Peaks but haven't gotten into Other David Lynch things because you're worried that they're going to be too weird or whatever, I mean, at least watch like Blue Velvet Blue and Velvet. Um, maybe um, Mulholland Drive. Yeah, yeah. those are those, those are, are probably good pulls from from. And then if you watch, if you go and watch Twin Peaks season three and like that, then just go and watch any other David then, Lynch yeah, thing. Definitely for sure. Um, we still haven't seen uh, on the air, which was the Frost and Frost right. and Lynch's other TV show that was only mm-hmm. on for a few episodes, but it's all on YouTube. That's true, and we've that's been recommended to us a few times. Yeah, Tobjorn Grunovic Dahl writes: I keep thinking of truly excellent questions while listening to the Ruination Cast, and then forget them. Now that Jonathan Blow has conquered both platformers and first-person games, and is poised to absolutely destroy the Sokoban genre, what video game genre would you like to see him own next? I would like John Blow to make an MMO. Wow. That would be intense. That'd be very interesting. That would, that would actually be I would be interested in seeing yeah, that. As John well. Blow's MMO. Yeah. The On TNT. John Blow MMO. <laughs> That's short for Jonathan Blow is blowing my mind, I imagine. <laughs> off. <laughs> Jonathan Blow <laughs> blowing my mind off. <laughs> yeah. Jonathan Blow MMO. <laughs> Jonathan Blow My Mind Off. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Stupid. Uh, but, but true. That's the most likely title, pro- I would say, for <laughs> yeah. something Jonathan Blow. I'm going to Jonathan make. Blow Your Mind with my <laughs> new massively multiplayer online game. <laughs> Jonathan Blow is going to make you his bitch. <laughs> um, yeah. I guess it would be John Blow if we're really going to keep the nomenclature yeah. of the original John Romero ad. Mm-hmm. Right. That's true. Yeah. Oh God. Sorry, I didn't like saying that out loud on this podcast. Anyway, yeah. um, it's just remember nineteen ninety seven or whatever. It probably yeah. was nineteen ninety seven. Twenty years ago. God. Gross. Uh, yeah, I'm a, that was a good call. Um, 
I, I probably for me, I think the thing that makes MMO appealing to me in that in that regard is just that it seems so totally at odds with anything he's ever done, and that just seems intrinsically interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess in the same vein, like, uh, I mean, it's I, I don't know that it's necessarily true that he's made that it. I guess Braid is a platformer, I suppose technically. What? It's a hundred percent a platformer. I mean, it's a, it's styled a hundred percent like it's, it's styled like a platformer, but it doesn't. Not, I like all none of the, of the things that a platformer. The things that are fun and interesting about a platformer are to me not the things that are fun and interesting about Braid. Yeah, but it's Braid, a puzzle game. But it still needs to have all of the working mechanics of a platformer yeah. feeling good and present for the other parts on top of it to yeah. be to work. I guess that's true. I mean, I guess so. This says now that Jonathan Blow has conquered both platformers and first-person games. I mean, I would call both of those games puzzle games. Yeah, using those genres as wrappers, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it might end up. I mean. I guess the equivalent of that in an MMO space was like that Mist Uru. Yeah. But I don't even know what that was. I never actually played it. Yeah, another part of I mean, I said MMO is a joke, but also partly because John Blow's two releases so far are such there's so focused on you being alone with this piece of work and spending right. a bunch of time unraveling it and the idea of inserting try, a bunch of other yeah, live try, humans. Trying into to create it? any yeah. experience that has that sort of contemplative uh, or sort of un- slowly un- unraveling or pulling apart the onion feel, but also can exist with other humans. I don't know if anyone else, like, I don't know if anyone would ever bother to make that. But if for some reason Jonathan Blow decided that was interesting to him, he's probably the person who exists who would sink his life into figuring out if it was possible. Yeah, that's true. Also, it was a fun goof to say John Blow. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Polly Bats, this is sort of a long He can also make a lines. fighting game, like a straight up. Oh man! Like Jonathan Blow at Evo, right? <laughs> All these things also have to have funny rhymes that are they also three-letter words. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Polly Bats ask a question along sort of similar lines, which is: Would you rather? What make should an- Jonathan Blow not make? <laughs> <laughs> would you rather make an open-world Far Cry Two-style FPS Mist or a turn-based RPG Doom? I mean, definitely the turn-based RPG Doom, just because I don't want to make a first-person shooter. I just, I just would not. I don't think I would enjoy making a game where you just shoot people all the time. Even though I play games like that, sometimes. I thought it was. What was the first one? Is, is that, is it? An open world Far Cry Two style first person shooter mist. Oh, but it ends with mist. Mi- yeah. So maybe you don't shooter have to shoot mist. someone. Doesn't yeah. That... Maybe you just shoot something else. Maybe when you shoot, you just always miss. I think this is a, this is another <laughs> like procedurally. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> when you shoot, you miss. <laughs> yeah, you missed. You've missed. Yeah, but then uh, you're. Your sort of hit scan bullet also fires, uh, hits a, a, a block somewhere that makes an obscure animal sound play, and you go, "What, what was that?" Yeah. And then it all becomes revealed. Isn't it open world big mist just the witness? Uh, yeah, but it's certainly not. It's not but you don't FPS. I mean, I guess yeah. It depends if this person's using FPS. It could be a first literally, a f- or if they are using it in a colloquial sense to just mean a first mm. person. A game. fantastic puzzle solver. <laughs> there we go. Open world Far Cry Two style first fantastic puzzle solver. Missed MMO by John Blow. It's the witness, except that you have a uh, first person IK based like Jurassic Park trespasser hand that you have to use to solve the puzzle. <laughs> but if you miss, you can just kind of knock it over and it'll roll down a hill and then fuck up a different puzzle. Right. And then you have to go. <laughs> somewhere else to get yeah. to get through the area yeah uh, or you have to just come back and it eventually resets in an annoying way all the in the style of far cry 2 the puzzles eventually reset themselves that's true. That's and you true. have to fucking mm-hmm. solve it them all again, again just to yeah. get back to the other mm-hmm. side of the map yeah so that's i think that's <laughs> i'm describing like a cd-rom parody of the witness yeah. <laughs> describing the pissed of the witness <laughs> oh god <laughs> yeah I think someone's made a turn-based Doom. I think that there. I think that there have been. I'm sure there are t- turn-based takes, on, yeah. takes on Doom that I, are yeah. that are like that. Yeah. yeah, I think there's a game actually just called Doom RPG mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. to that effect. I would love to play a version of The Witness where you have to actually like manipulate a Jurassic Park trespasser hand. Would you? How long would you love to play that? Oh, an hour on yeah. a stream. Yeah, that's like, true. Like The Witness with sort of a surgeon simulator the aesthetic. VR. Yeah, where you could sort of like have to open and manipulate all the stuff. Yeah, with. And they just become increasingly ridiculous contraptions. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. The, you could do such stupid stuff where yeah, like, the puzzle good. thing is, uh, the puzzle panel is hanging off of a little like physics rope, so when you touch it, it just goes, <laughs> oh, God. It sort of just like yeah. slowly rotates away from simulator. you. Yeah, oh, exactly. Man. The witness. <laughs> that would actually, yeah. Just yeah. What, what could get that sort of fumbly physics Far Cry experience, mm-hmm. and you have malaria. 
(laughs) (laughs) That's the Far Cry 2 style part. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, all the pills are inside of just big medical cases that you have to solve puzzles to open or you die of malaria. Yeah. That's that's good. That's how you... That's, I mean, you know... I I wasn't sure if The Witness was a real game, and I think we've made it that by adding physics and malaria. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, for sure. And checkpoints. Joel Palmer asks, what albums have you enjoyed from 2017? What albums from 2017? Oof. I don't know if it has to be necessarily... I, I guess I guess he means released in 2017, but I feel free to answer it in 2017 rather than from 2017. It's our podcast. We do whatever we want. Jesus. I don't know. I don't listen to music ever. Um, I recently... This is a soundtrack album, but uh, um, Jessica Curry, who is the composer for The Chinese Room, which made... Uh, Amnesia Machine for Pigs and Dear Esther and and um, Everybody's Gone to the Rapture recently released uh, the soundtrack to the Chinese Room's latest game, which is a VR game called So Let Us Melt, which I have no way to play, so I haven't played it and probably never will. Uh, so for me, that soundtrack album was just an album because um, I, I think Jessica Curry is fantastic, and so I just bought it as, you know, I just bought the downloadable album, and it's really good, and I would totally recommend it as a really great piece of um, sort of choir and orchestral writing with electronic elements that's it's very her uh, and very good. If you've liked any of her other works, you'll probably like this. So that's the soundtrack to So Let Us Melt by Jessica Curry. Chad is saying composer and co-founder, I think. Uh, she's Yeah, I think she, she is the co-founder of the studio and I co-owns it with yeah. Dan Pinchbeck, uh, her husband, and the other person who that's cool. I just mentioned composer because that was related to the uh, listen, Chris, to the album specifically. I don't know music. Ugh. <laughs> You're so disdainful. I don't have an answer for this either. I've, I've not listened to a current album this year. Yep. Have you listened to an old album this year? Of course. Any good ones? Um, I I like Nico Case. I <laughs> yeah, enjoy that. Enjoy Nick that likes Nico Case. Enjoy that. Man, I bought, uh, this is so stupid, but I bought um, Switched On Bach by Wendy Carlos. Oh, from, man. For, yeah, from, uh, I don't know, probably the mid-70s. I forget exactly what year that came out. But that's, like, Wendy Carlos uh, is an electronic, sort of pioneering electronic um, composer and performer who came to prominence when she created uh, an album called Switched On Bach, which took the works of Johann Sebastian Bach and interpreted them through Moog synthesizers, Moog synthesizers being uh, really early important, um, you know, synthesized keyboard instruments. And I recently, I mean, I've known about this for a long time and a lot of people would know about it because um, some of her work was used in the soundtrack to A Clockwork Orange by Stanley Kubrick, um, both. And she also did the original soundtrack to The Shining, although much of the music in that uh, movie is um, existing compositions and, and her, I think pretty much all that's left in there from her work is the main theme, which you might recognize. But anyway, just a really great, uh, interesting figure in the world of electronic sort of art music, I guess. And I recently was reading ab- about her for the first time in a while. And I was reading about the making of Switched On Bach, the album, which uh, which is just a really fun, good listen. And due to the way those synthesizers worked at a, at a, uh, at the time, they were totally monophonic, which means only one note can be played at any one time. So she had to painstakingly record every single part over itself mm-hmm. and just go note by note and perform mm-hmm. these entire albums, like just, in you know, overdubbing again and again and again and I mean it's just I mean without the aid of computers or MIDI or any of the things that would make that a much 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 easier task now and when you listen to it it sounds so seamless it's really impressive Um, so that was just a cool ridiculous fact I learned uh, about that album but that's definitely not a 2017 album but I uh, acquired it for the first time in 2017 only having heard just various bits of it in the past switched on Bach by Wendy Carlos 
Uh, Ian McNichol writes, what do you think about the differences between designers that has emerged as the games industry has grown? There are now more than half a dozen designer titles across level designers, system designers, and narrative designers. You may have the same title as another designer, but a drastically different set of duties. Should any... St- oh, Mouth Moods by Neil Cicerega. Did that come out this year? Yes. Oh, wow. Anyway. Wow. Um, Thanks, Chad. Ago. <laughs> should there be any standardization on what classifies a, as a designer, or should we maintain this status quo? Uh, I think at large teams, the reason so many titles exist is because there are that many things to do mm-hmm. on games that have often hundreds of total developer, you know, total employees across all disciplines. Um, so I don't really see any reason that shouldn't. Yeah, flattening be the that case. out to just referring to people as designers would actually be a disaster because yeah. it's impossible to know who's responsible for what. Yeah, yep. yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think in the the uh, these questions are always so difficult because games in a way that just that simply does not apply to film or something, which is probably the closest comparison in terms of like just major commercial art with respect to how games are made. I mean, they're both large team endeavors. Even a very small game often has like half a dozen people, which is just more people than write a book or, you know, something like that. Uh, even more people than in most like pop groups or whatever. Uh, obviously, there are very tiny indie games, and that that's sort of irrelevant to this question because those people don't, by virtue of having so few people, have no need for these titles. So any situation that has specific titles like this is going to just be so different from team to team that I don't know what. Yeah, I don't know if it's even possible to standardize them. There, it's not. There is standardization to some degree across types of games. Like the notion of a level designer, the, actually, I think contrary to this person's question, I think is actually sort of declining in games to some degree. I mean, the, the, the classical notion of a level designer as a very specific discipline, um, I feel like was more of a thing maybe a decade ago. Um, it's become tough now that not all games have levels. Yeah. Now that you can have big streaming contiguous exactly. spaces, yeah. the notion of sort of designing a world as a whole and then having people design specific missions or story elements that take place in there, it's very different than just like I designed this level this, called this that has these boundaries. Yeah, like on I it designed and, yeah. medical in Bioshock. Exactly. It's like that's yeah. like just there's a, a file that the yeah. game loads and your content mm-hmm. plays, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, as game, especially in just even in the last couple of years, as games have really chased sort of, especially again, I'm talking about large scale games here, which I think is relevant to this person's question because, again, this many different titles sort of implies a team of a certain size. Um, as that side of the industry has so relentlessly chased kind of never ending experiences and games with. Uh, extra content that you buy or earn and, and all this stuff, it really just sort of erodes the notion of levels in that respect. I mean, there are probably, because of that, there are also new kinds of designers that simply didn't used to exist, like engagement designers and things like that. I don't know if that's a real thing, but there are definitely people employed to to focus on like retaining players and, and dealing with, you know engagement yeah. and like monetization effectiveness and stuff like that. I've also never really worked on a game like this. Nick, you worked at Bethesda for for a bit, but just the big huge games like that. It feels like the notion of designing a, a single quest versus designing a quest line or sort of a chain of missions versus and and then conceiving where on the map those take place and what the spaces are inside of them. None of those individual things seems quite as close to what a traditional level designer was and it also seems a little different than what just being a person who writes quests was when it comes to like really old RPGs. It seems like that the line in all of those is blurred, and I don't know how, I don't know how those jobs split apart. But there's just a little bit of overlap in every discipline. Yeah. I mean, they still call them level designers and quest designers, but yeah, you're right. I mean, like level designers at this point, I think they still at Bethesda, I think they still have, um, it, you know, like uh, the, it's it's their uh, purview to determine where they where that level is placed in the world. But then there's a world designer who is designing the actual right, environment the, the, around the world that quest. Is built so it's like out of like crazy erosion modeling and all sorts of weird like yeah. at the beginning, right? You generate an actual continent, yeah. and then have to choose where inside of that world stuff goes, which is so different than 
you know, someone graph on graph paper drawing out a map of what a space station is going to look like from nothing or yeah. whatever. You basically end up with like small teams who are responsible for a particular zone or something that all have you know overlapping yeah. disciplines. Yeah, it's it. This conversation is a really good example in a concrete way, I think, of when you talk about film versus games. Like on a film, you have a person whose job it is to literally grab and move a camera around and that's true every time and you have someone whose job is to draw what the sets look like and you have that every time and a person who draws what the storyboards look like that happens every fucking time but like on a game maybe not yeah maybe a robot makes your entire world from assets that an artist creates and that is re-rolled every single time you Mm -hmm. press play you would not have a level designer then but you would definitely have someone whose job is to design and tune all the algorithms that make that happen you know Mm -hmm. yeah and you wouldn't call that a level designer it's true I mean the job of an engineer on games is a lot more fungible in the sense that an engineer can move from studio to studio and they might be creating totally different things but the way that they do it is pretty much like they're using C++ or C Sharp or some language that either they already know or that is a programming language and if they're you know good at what they do that is not a big deal for them to move between and I think the sort of fungibility of that role has a lot to do with how well paid it is relative to designers those people are in demand because they're used they're in demand not just in games but in pretty much every other industry at this point as well it's totally standardized in terms of just basic kinds of knowledge even if there are lots of different kinds of programmers still, clearly. And in design, this is not the case at all. I mean, you this, you might be an incredibly valuable member of one studio having spent 10 years developing skills that are literally useless at any other video game studio. It's mm-hmm. just how it is. Um, it's a... And I don't... With the breadth of things games are, I don't know if... I don't really expect that to change very much. Just because yeah, it seems like necessity. On, in some places, if you end up on a recurring franchise or at a studio that only makes one style of game, if you're not careful, there's probably the odds are higher and higher that you can fall into a into an increasingly specialized fractal, yeah. actually, mm-hmm. in a way that was definitely. not quite as true before. Yep. Yeah, that's definitely yep. true. Which, you know, that's not, you're not fated to get owned that way if you have a career in games, but you, it's it's a... It's a, it's a possibility. It's a definite possibility. I yeah. mean, I think that's probably one reason the games industry doesn't tend to host very long careers. You know, I've mentioned this definitely on Idle Thumbs, our actual video game podcast before, but I used to um, run the, for a couple of years, I ran the game uh, games industry salary survey, which was published by Game Developer Magazine and Gamasutra. And um, the statistics on how long people maintain careers in the video game industry are pretty dire. I mean, only, I think at the, this was, you know, as of several years ago, so I don't know how it's changed since then, but probably not that much. At the time, something like 25% of people maintained careers of 10 years or more, which is just not, I mean, that means most people are in the industry for less than that, and that's not a very long time. I mean, that's a lot of people Yeah, that's not just, just which job out. you have, but what entire sphere of career you're exactly. in. Exactly. Yeah. It's just the, the, the games industry is, you know, in for many reasons, this only being one of them, uh, not very good at ma- at sort of providing a long-term, sustainable, robust employment for a given person. Man, I think I've just recently gone past 10 years. Oh, yeah? Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. You made it. I did it. <laughs> I'm in the 25%. Nice. <laughs> um, let's see here. Uh, Reggie Clark says, I wanted to ask if you guys have ever played the Steam World Dig series. I'm enjoying the new version on the Switch. I'm curious... What uh, what you could do with a story based and beautiful platformer like Firewatch plus platforming? I think Jake and Chris's love of platforming could add a lot to the game. Chris, do you love platforming? Um, it depends. I mean, I love. Sp- I mean, Spelunky is one of my favorite games of all time. Um, I like platforming when it feels sort of interestingly complex in the way something like Spelunky Oh, right, you is. don't like, like, rote memorization mechanical stuff, like Mega Man is not... Is no, what you dis- I can do what... it. I mean, I'm, you yeah. know, I really liked Cuphead, but it's not exciting to me intrinsically. Right. Um, so, yeah. I've not played... I don't, I I don't, honestly, know the, I don't even know what SteamWorld Dig is. I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> There's one on the Switch, though, and Jake has a Switch. Jake could play it, conceivably. You get Switches. I recommend them. I Yeah, I know. I keep thinking about it. It seems cool. Uh, Andrew Dice 
asks, Even after years of pods, I don't think I've heard you guys talk about uh, Jodorowsky's Dune. In case any listeners don't know, this canceled film's place in sci-fi movie history. Can you talk about Jodorowsky's Dune? Thanks. Uh, there was a documentary yeah. about this that I think was called Jodorowsky's Dune mm-hmm. that I saw in theaters, actually, mm. in Seattle a few years ago. And it was a uh, it was a really good watch. So the the director, I think, is I think is, is Alejandro Jodorowsky. Yeah. Does that sound right? Yeah. Yeah. He, he directed all kinds of um, really surreal <laughs> uh, sort of cult films. I'm trying to actually bring any of them to mind. I have not seen any of them, I don't think. I like the Magic Mountain, maybe. Yeah. I don't have my phone on me, so I can't check any of these things. But uh, just a, a interesting, weird cult director who's still, I believe, active to this day, uh, was supposed to adapt Dune to film, and eventually it ended up um, in a completely different form, being directed by David Lynch, sort of as a famously unsuccessful adaptation of that work, and. Uh, more interestingly, a lot of the team that Yodorowsky assembled uh, to make Dune, this is all from memory for me watching this documentary years ago, but went on to be involved in really influential and important movies like Alien. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of people sort of see the like diaspora of Yodorowsky's Dune as suggesting that this movie could have been truly incredible. Look at all the talented people involved. I came away from the documentary not really believing that. Um, I thought it looked fascinating and sort of captivating in a fever dream sort of way and really interesting, like having a lot of ideas in it, but also looked like a project. It's hard for me to not look at stuff like this from the perspective of someone who works in, like, I guess, commercial creative entertainment. Like, it looked bloated and kind of almost centerless and overly ambitious and it wasn't really clear to me how it ever would have turned into a like complete um, yep. self-justifying film. It, it might actually itself. be. It might actually be for the best that all that we got were all these things that let you imagine what could yeah. be, and mm. then it went and still managed to influence the field in which it existed exactly, without yeah. ever having to be a movie. Like, right? Yeah. Maybe that's <laughs> kind of how I felt. I, I thought the documentary was really um, credulous. Like it didn't really have it, it. The documentary seemed to, on its face, take it as a given that all this stuff was so incredible and that sort of in turn made me even more skeptical. But it was a totally fascinating watch and I would highly recommend watching the movie yeah. uh, Yodorowsky's Dune, the documentary, because it was really, really interesting. And it, it it was totally fascinating how many of the people involved were incredibly, uh, were in, or or in some cases are just important people or influences in, in <laughs> science fiction film. So that's cool. Uh, Michi Leroux asks... There it is. Any hint on the basis of the next Campo Santo game? <laughs> nope. No. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, you had you, to know that was going to be the answer yeah. to this. I'm glad, I'm glad that you backed our Patreon to ask us that question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a video game. It is a video game. We can say that. Uh, it's not a Firewatch sequel. I think we've said that publicly before, so that's safe to say. But uh, what if? But that's a, that's a hint, I suppose. It'll take place in the Mirror Moon universe as started by Firewatch. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, Matt asks... Having in, in which our moon texture is backwards accidentally. Yeah, we accidentally reversed the moon in Firewatch and some people noticed. Matt <laughs> writes, Having done a handful of escape rooms in San Francisco over the past few years, I've really loved them as a form of frantic group cooperation, cooperative puzzle solving. In an incredible coincidence, as a second time to mention this on this Ruination cast, I recently escaped from the Palace of Fine Arts Roosevelt Room by Palace Games. Definitely do that one if you haven't yet, and it got me thinking, do you all know of any digital games that invoke the same kind of multiplayer puzzle solving? The closest I can come up with is Terry... Jonathan Blows MMO. (laughs) Is Terry Kavanaugh's At a Distance, which was a really neat two-player experience, but that's all I can think of. (laughs) No, I don't really. Mm. I don't. I don't... That's a really interesting problem to tackle, but it seems really difficult. Um, Keep talking and no one explodes. The VR bomb diffusing game is actually kind of like that, except that it's not a shared multiplayer game. It's it's, it takes place in real life. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Hmm. I mean, I suppose this isn't. I mean, Space Team is yeah, it's another one digital game and has that sort of collaborative frantic thing. I mean, that's way more frantic than a Room Escape. An actual room escape game is in real life. 
So much of what makes Room Escapes work is that you're in a physical place and can handle things. Yeah. And it, 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 I think that goes a long way to um, uh, ameliorating the potential problem that is sort of inevitable in Room Escape games, which is that most of the time, most of the people aren't actively achieving anything. Like, usually in a Room Escape game, you're working on between, like, one and three concurrent puzzles at the same time. Mm-hmm. But if you have more than three people, that sort of definitionally means not everyone is... Like, a lot of people are just going to be wandering around trying to figure out, like, can I find something else to, you know, point the right way, but not necessarily achieving anything. And in a room escape game, you can often go a long time without doing anything. But I think being in the physical, real space with your friends or just other strangers who you're now meeting and with physical objects at 100% fidelity because it is the real world makes it not boring Yep. I would think that it would be hard to get around that in a digital space where it feels like like eh. yeah you know there's so? there's the upside of of putting the game like this in a digital space you is can that put literally anything in it yeah and you're yeah. not confined to the space you could have everyone you could have That's someone true. throw a switch in a, mm-hmm. in in the virtual room have the lights go off and then each of the eight participants is inside of a single mm. isolated chamber where you can still talk that's to each true. other verbally but you're like okay it's what do you see what do you, that's like a you good could, idea you know yeah. and then you have to solve your way back out of that together like you could yeah. literally give everyone a unique thing to do by force because you have control over yeah. what's in everyone's hands and what's in front of their eyes but I don't think it would work for technical stupid reasons which is getting a, getting eight friends into a multiplayer game to solve a puzzle is really hard. Yeah. Also, like, what do you do once you've already solved it? Can you keep doing that, it again? That's what I mean. Like exactly, yeah. like it's as a one-time experience. Yeah. The draw of oh, we're all friends who live in the same city, let's go to this yeah. room and do this is it's like it's well, like it's like going to the theater or going to a movie or right. something, but people don't multiplayer right. game like that. And you that. can chart, be, because it's in the real world in a physical place, yeah. the implied scarcity of that allows you to charge enough that the bil- that the business can be sustainable even if every single person in your target audience only ever goes to it exactly one time. Yeah. Whereas in it, digitally, even though your costs of creating and maintaining it are lower, you would still need to charge a certain amount just to make it economically feasible to have yeah. a digital game that people can only solve once. Yeah. I think that, that I think seems that real hard. From a from a game design standpoint, there are a ton of really cool upsides actually to doing it digitally, but yeah. I don't think the business model yeah. aligns correctly. Yeah, that's a good point. But you know but who knows? Who's to say? Uh, Tom Grundy asks, do you have any sort of eternal September for anything in your life? Any period where something you were into gained mainstream acceptance, which then fundamentally changed your relationship with that thing? For context, eternal September is Usenet slang for when all the AOL people began flooding Usenet. And this is used to demarcate basically before all those dang normal people showed up. Um, I'm going to elaborate on the specific meaning of eternal September because Tom Grundy here doesn't doesn't explain it. But the what that actually meant, because I remember this. Uh, I, I, I was after this point that I got online, but soon enough after it that I remember it still being a common phrase that was used. The What that means is that Usenet, um, and by extension much of the internet, uh, was primarily accessed for a long time, Usenet being news groups, either by like really early adopters, people who had a way to like have internet access and be into something long before society was, or also by students because universities were a big part of where the internet grew. And that was for a lot of people going to university was the first time they would have internet access because it was, you know, they were part of now this big institution that was part of this big network, whereas in their own just home, they, that was just not something they encountered. And so September was sort of stereotypically when a bunch of young newcomer idiots would show up because people with the school year would start. And so the eternal September was like, now this isn't just people in universities. Now everyone just has the internet and now it's the eternal September. So that's what that phrase Well, that specifically is referring to September of 1993, which was when AOL first activated Ah, the Usenet. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, was when just... Was the, it actually specifically in September? September. Oh, that's of, funny. September, September of '93 was when the wall between America Online and Usenet was lifted, mm-hmm. and just every asshole. I was one of those. I had AOL. I yeah. didn't have the internet. I, I ruined the internet. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'd actually never heard it in the student in the student context. That's really interesting. That that tracks for yeah. me as well. Yeah. Um, I would say th- I don't think I have anything that has such a 
clear um you know to to jake's to to your point there like it happened at this time and like the floodgates <laughs> open now i don't think i don't think that that's ra- that's got to be pretty rare historically speaking um but definitely looking at what's going on now with um sort of just trends in multiplayer gaming multiplayer like video games uh that definitely feels like a case where a thing i used to really love and participate in is just it's it's spilled over into being like, so huge that, and yeah the the interests in it yeah the fi- the financial interests in multiplayer gaming are so huge now that it's yeah that it's enabling a lot of really yeah. predatory and shitty game design and business practices that are totally unappealing to me and it just feels i've actually felt this way for years not to say like i'm so cool and the things i like should work but like it should just be the thing I, I do think now a lot of the like money-based influences in multiplayer games are actually bad. Like I think those are actually bad. A lot of stuff that happened before it was all explicitly money-based, just in terms of persistent upgrades and rewards and stuff, were already unappealing to me. Not because they're inherently bad, just because they were not for me. So I already kind of felt like the world of online multiplayer games had sort of like ter- it's grown it's, away from my interest yeah, but it's, now it's, it's ex- extreme it's been a long drift with i mean the initial loot boxes in, T- in uh, tf2 yeah and on one hand and then yeah the sort of persistent experience based stuff on the console side now it's all all of those things have crashed into each other uh, a thousand percent yeah 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 do you guys I, have any other examples of this sort of thing i have the 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 the, the that multiplayer one's interesting because I, I hadn't, I, I don't think about it. Even though you're right, I used to play a ton of online multiplayer first-person stuff, and I've drif- drifted away as the culture of it has changed because the design of it has changed because the audience of it has changed. The but usually I don't really mind if a lot of other people like the thing that I oh, like. I don't mind that in theory at all. Uh, yeah. And I, I sometimes benefit from it. For instance, the reason that I have my career right now is because uh, adventure games, graphic adventure games, which was my favorite thing. Uh, as a as a kid, and then in my early online days, like all the communities that I was in were uh, basically people who were really into graphic adventure games slash disgruntled that people didn't make graphic adventure games <laughs> slash disgruntled that any new people would ever like graphic adventure games. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that uh, downloadable games and th- sort of 3D gaming becoming a lot more common and affordable and just... P- the PC gaming's ability to diversify uh, in the early 2000s meant that graphic adventure games became financially viable again, and a ton of people play them, and their influence is in all sorts of genres now, and I actually really, like, that was a, g- a good version of that for me, personally. Like, the thing that I like actually became broadly cool. Yeah. yeah. Not not in the same degree as first-person multiplayer shooters, obviously, like, right. orders of magnitude yeah. smaller, but I'm, I, you know... A lot of people that I knew in that in that sort of early online scene actually like have careers now. Yeah, that's really cool. Making either like modern takes on that genre of games, or in the case of a lot of people, literally still making three twenty by two hundred right. DOS style yeah, yeah, point and click yeah. adventure games, but they can still find hundreds of, or like thousands or tens of thousands of people to sell them to. That's cool. Yeah, that is really cool. Thanks, endless September. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've definitely been part of the endless September wave, like. I you know I mentioned airline miles earlier in this. I got in I got deep in airline miles like f- four years ago, four five years ago maybe. And like I think that was probably right around the point at which the prevalence of online like blogs and stuff around that kind of hobby um, w- reached a point of bringing in just huge new audiences. So you were in that wave, were, yeah. I, I wasn't. It was sort of coincidence. In my case, it was just because I had a a lot of travel that mm-hmm. I that I had to do for real, like legitimate life reasons. And so then I, I just sort of ended up going into it sideways organically for that reason. And I actually still don't really follow a lot of those blogs. I, I, I just follow the Flyer Talk forums, which is where I learned everything I know about it. But I definitely like um, chronologically was, you know, probably totally part of that just like wave of however many thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people who 
swarmed into the miles and points game in the in the last you know in the 2010s basically and i think a lot of people in that community find it really irritating <laughs> but whatever uh, sorry i just started thinking about the fact that uh, what? i don't, don't want to talk about gamergate oh yeah gamergate <laughs> just floods of people like finding interest and passion in a thing that was previously gate kept by a very small community then that community just being angry ass yeah. wipes about yeah. it. Yeah, you, you want to be really careful like, about like, getting too precious about Yeah, like Endless September was sort of thing. the first yeah. version of that online. Yeah. yeah. But Gamergate is like, it's funny because me talking about like, oh, adventure games and the, the narrative game experiences, yeah. be, being able to find an audience and being able to sell uh, in the same places as traditional games, blah, 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 blah. There were a bunch of people who f- fucking hated that for completely different oh, reasons yeah. than anything one that of the I things, was about. God, I mean, gross, I, remember I just myself out. One of the things <laughs> that really turned me off of the adventure game community I mean, you know, more, well over a decade ago since I've been actually was actually part of it was how insular it, and yeah, it like, had its own f- fucking disastrous gatekeeping. Yeah. And that stuff sucks. I don't. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's the stuff can go two ways. Right. I mean, there you can get the, the version of it where something becomes so big and profitable that it becomes poisonous because of its large scale, which I think happens a lot of times in a sort of just capitalist society. Um, but then you can have the the other danger, which is things are too insular and they make people they give people a diluted belief that it is correct that the thing is like insular and gate kept and that any change to that is a threat to them or some kind of like insult or something. And that's really terrible also. Ah, yeah. It's nice, though, that um, the previously gate kept this should be a pure genre for puzzle fans and hardcore enthusiasts only branched out into uh, engrossing narrative puzzle-free experiences and then that flow flowed into for hardcore gamers only digital marketplaces and caused them to get enraged wait what what is that last thing you just said oh gamergate the gamergate comes wait what i mean oh i see what you're saying i see what you're saying okay sorry that was really hard to follow if you don't (laughs) if you're not deeply aware of all the things that you just sorry (laughs) so what you're saying is that a very insular genre adventure games yes which is was a very gate kept like hardcore oriented community of especially a lot of whom were obsessed with like hardcore puzzles and yeah it was especially like that in the in the like late 90s early 2000s definitely that one one sort of branch of that turned into walking simulators which is you know decried by some people as the and the, sort of just like emotionally focused story first right, narrative yeah, interactive yeah. narrative experiences which a lot which you know a lot of um a certain type of person sees as the most insulting and anti-gamer sort of trend in video games so yeah, yeah that is an irony there so it's good that it's good that the the adventure game like fish tank cracked and a bunch of adventure game purists screamed yeah. and then where where it dripped into was another community of people who were getting yeah. mad that it also <laughs> showed up there yeah um cool times you know it's a lot more complicated than that but that was that's one yeah. one little it's a lot more complicated than that on that note that brings the idle thumbs <laughs> ruination online for november 2017 to a close thank you if you were one of the people who uh who submitted a question to this episode and thank you if uh, you didn't and you just listened to us talk about them um, for an hour. Um, this, uh, as always, this podcast is available in video form on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash idle videos uh, or as a podcast on the idle thumbs podcast feed, which is where you may be listening to it right now. If you would like more information about our Patreon campaign, how to become a uh, backer and get the monthly postcards that are definitely going to go out, some one way or another um, or ask a question on this ongoing podcast, you can find more information there at patreon.com slash idle thumbs. All the information is there. You can read all about it. All right. For idle thumbs, I am Chris Remo. I'm Nick Brecken. I'm Jake Rodkin. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You're welcome. Bye. Now let's figure out what this episode's going to be.